Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go This is The Final Word, Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, our weekly history of cricket program. I must say, it is mid-T20 World Cup and it is a relief, Adam, to be doing this show and not The Daily Show because normally when we're about to hit start on The Daily Show, 
one, it's about 4.45 in the morning uh, where I am. And two, it's like, okay, I've got to be super on. I've got to remember 53 things. I've got to say them all in 18 minutes. Uh, we've got to get through it all at breakneck speed. And here, I don't have to do that. I can kick back. I can relax. I am metaphorically and literally wearing tracksuit pants to do this show. This is the feeling. This is the vibe on the couch, hanging out on a weird evening in Melbourne after a hurricane came through town last night and ripped down trees all over town. And now it's quiet, quiet as church, and here we are. Yeah, I see you wearing a salmon-coloured pair of tracky dacks, which I admire. That, that's that, 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 that's exactly what I want to be in at the moment. I'm, I'm dressed in um, slightly mm-hmm. more daytime attire. But I share your sentiment. Those daily shows are full on and they are harder to make than it, than it might appear because you have to remember a lot and you haven't got any prompts. Quite a lot to get through with two games. I forgot how challenging mm-hmm. it is when they're double headers because oh, when God. we've done when we've done the not to complain or anything, it's a joy to be making this for a living. Don't get me wrong, but uh, when we've done the daily shows before, you're focusing on one game. You, usually, we're at said game, and mm-hmm. you know we're being often videoed by Cam, uh, and we don't have to worry about um, what we look like because Cam makes us look nice. Sort of. But yes, me with my um, beauty light over the top of the camera, often it's bath time. What you can't hear through the microphone is Winnie's often wailing and screaming at that point. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, bath time for Winnie's either the nicest experience in the world on some days and water torture on others. And a couple of nights it's been water (laughs) torture at the window as we're we're recording. So anyway, Jeff, before we get into the fun bit of story time, which of course is the numbers that that underpin this weekend history Mm -hmm. show, because Mm -hmm. we're not doing a weekly show, show, uh, we should just quickly acknowledge the fact that Ben Stokes is coming to the Ashes. The reason we're not making a weekly show right now, of course, is that it's all T20 all the time. But yeah, Ben Stokes is making a return to international cricket. That's bloody exciting. I think it's been the silent majority. It's, it's been universally welcomed, I think, in Australia. That you know, There's been the usual uh, punchy stuff on, on social media as well, which I suppose is to be expected. Although maybe so not quite speak. as... Yeah, exactly. But maybe not quite as much Uh, as there might have been otherwise, because I think there's a a general acceptance that this is good for the series, great for cricket, uh, and the fact that he is such a a presence uh, between Australia and England over the last eight years, uh, it it means Mm. that in all probability this will be a closer series than otherwise would have been the case, and that's good, and that's a positive thing because this series did have preemptively perhaps Mm -hmm. the stench of death about it a little bit because of both teams' fragilities with the bat, but Stokes certainly firms up the visitors. I guess it's only the really, really rusted on sort of, um, you know, irredeemables who would be like, I hope the other team's best players can't come so that we win. Yes. Like if if that's your mindset, if that's your parochialism, then um, you're not getting a lot of enjoyment out of the sport. Probably most people think that they'd quite like to see the guy who can do some really good things, or at least they'd like the satisfaction of seeing him fail, you know, <laughs> one or the other. Yeah. And I think, like, in a way, the magic of Ben Stokes on the field, and bear with me with this theory, which I'm just sort of creating on the hoof here, I think it's that he's not that good. He's He can't do it all the time. You know, he he doesn't average 56 he averages whatever he does, 35 or something. He doesn't rip through lineups with the ball, but he does occasionally. He's not someone who's guaranteed to show up and dominate a match. He can fail pretty regularly, but he can occasionally be incredible. And I think that it's that thing that you don't know 
you 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 show up to see Joe Root in a test match and you know he's going to be quality you know he's there's that consistency of quality Stokes doesn't have that consistency of quality but he does have that ability to do something that no one else in his team can do when it happens and maybe that's more exciting yeah how i would interpret it is that his lack of consistency over the course of a career is mainly due to the fact that that's an affliction for a lot of all-rounders. If he weren't bowling and fielding at second slip and responsible for so much physical exertion and being mentally in the game for so much of a test match, then he probably would average far more with the bat or far less with the ball. Mm. But he is, I mean, you know, the term match winner gets bandied about quite a bit uh, in international cricket. This guy's legitimately a match winner. He's the guy who um, can change the whole complexion of a, of a game or a series. Uh, he can play different types of innings as well, from mm. the ostentatious to the quite conservative. Indeed, within the same innings, he can shift years remarkably well. Uh, and with the ball... I mean, again, a bit of a cliche to say he's two in one, but he's kind of like three in one because he is going to be a top five batsman. Decent argument for him to bat at number three, by the way. I don't think he will, but in Australia, I'd I'd consider it. He does give them the flexibility to definitely play a spinner. I don't know whether England would have played a spinner if Stokes wasn't available. There would have been the temptation to have gone with four quicks and six specialist (laughs) bats because I'm not sure whether they could take the risk, this is wrong, to, this, is, this is diminishing Jack Leach and I don't mean to, but take the risk that it doesn't play, play out using a holding conservative spinner like Leach, a finger spinner, which traditionally it's been hard to bowl finger spin in the modern era in Australia. I mean, with the exception of Nathan Lyon and Graham Swan, finger spinners have done pretty poorly in Australia on the whole over the last 20 years or so, if not longer. Uh, so they could have gone with an aggressive spin option and picked Parkinson for the squad. They went against that. So they're looking for a holding bowler. Well, in a way, Stokes gives them the ballast as the extra seamer to justify always playing a spinner. And they've been dreadful in the cordon, England. I mean, as bad as any team playing test cricket, Ben Stokes mm-hmm. has just about the best pair of hands in the game alongside, I mean, I guess Glenn Maxwell and a couple of others, Ravinda Jadeja. Stokes is as good as it gets. So he will create wickets in the field as well that England otherwise wouldn't mm-hmm. be getting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. Uh, I, I find it difficult not to be drawn towards him as a personality as well. Um, you know, we've gone around around the bend on, on what happened in Bristol four years ago, but the way that he's recovered from that experience, and I say recovered, I'm not saying that he should have had a pity party around him for what he did that night, but that, that I'm sure could have been the end of him as a serious presence in, in international cricket, and it wasn't. And he strikes me as the kind of guy who has tried very hard to improve himself in the years since. Uh, And it would have been a bloody disaster had he missed two Ashes series in Australia at the peak of his powers. Obviously, he missed 17-18. Had he missed another, um, it would have been a very sad thing for such a capable player who made such an impression in Australia in 13-14. So, yeah, it all comes together quite well. You want to see him... You want to see him have a go at it as the player that he actually became, mm. because you know when when he was here, he was starting out, made that hundred in Perth, yep. you know, which wasn't it wasn't a terrifying track or anything. It looked cracked, but it wasn't, you know, it actually played played pretty well despite that. Um, but in that series where England were being bashed up, you know, he was a guy who came in and was a kid really, and and produced something really special. So had he, I mean, if he'd missed this tour, he would quite conceivably have never played another Ashes in Australia. Like yep. there's, you know, there's no no guarantee that he'd get back in four years' time. So 
yeah, for for that part, I'm I'm glad to I'm glad that he'll be part of it. Right. So uh, Ben Stokes is coming. Uh, I think just to uh, put, underline that point, we won't make a weekly show next week either. We know a lot's going on uh, around the cricketing world right now, but we're just going to just press pause on that. We'll do a few more issues uh, on story time next week in and around the broader game, uh, just so we're we're balancing out what we're putting in your podcast feed. To be blunt, because uh, we know we're kind of saturating it right now, and after this, there'll probably be another podcast in there in about four hours before or after or something like that because of the, the T20 World Cup daily. So that, that's why we're a bit light on on the long-form stuff. But can't wait to get back into it in about a fortnight or so. We will keep making uh, story time, though, Jeff. And in order to play yep. story time, we need to do a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's a game. Uh, it's a game that we play with some very lovely people on our patron page. And here's how it works. Because we make these shows, not just two a week at the moment, about eight a week at the moment, they have to get funded somehow. And, and these these generous people help us fund the program by sending in contributions. But here's the catch. The contributions are not just a coin that they find in their pocket that happens to be a, a common denomination of currency. Here's 20 Swedish krona. No, no, no. It's much more much more specific than that. Um, they use the decimal points and they use the, uh, the numbers after the decimal points to link their number to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the relationship is. For example, Chris Clark is coming in first off the rank this week as a helicopter flies overhead that you might be able to hear through the microphone. It Drugs. is dropping off Chris Clark's number. I think it's probably cops, but it could be both. Por que no los dos? Um, $1.80 is what Chris Clark has sent through. Or maybe it's pounds. Uh, you know, I, who can say? I haven't recorded this information in the sheet this week as I normally do. One. Point eight zero, but that could mean one hundred and eighty. It could mean eighteen. It could mean eighteen thousand. It could mean any number of permutations on one eight zero. What does it mean, Adam Collins? You've got the floor. One hundred eighty. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cricket. It's a darts number, of course. It's a bit of a cricket number it as is, well. Yeah. Speaking of Krona, we have had a pledge. It's, come it's also a skateboarding number and a snowboarding number. True, a lot of one eighties um, that happen in, for instance, Tony Hawk Pro Skater on PlayStation, um, which I devoted a lot of time to. Was that was um, that the version of Tony Hawk that had the Body Jar song uh, on the soundtrack? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, one of the million, had, I think uh, it was. Uh huh. Yeah, and main, it was mainly Gorilla Radio by Rage Against the right. Machine. That was the defining song of the okay. Tony Hawk okay. soundtrack in the, the sort of early part of the millennium. I know who will love the Body Jar reference. One Andrew Dono Donison, our producer from the UAE a few years ago. He's a Body, tra- body Jar Ultra. Uh, 180. Okay. Can, can, I, can I just quickly um, d- divert here? Please. Tony Hawk, obviously everybody loves Tony Hawk, and there's that whole thing going around about um, that nobody knows who Tony Hawk is, and then people ask him if he's heard of Tony Hawk when they see him carrying a skateboard and that sort of thing, but they don't know what Tony Hawk looks like. There was a video that he put up of just him just driving around with a bunch of skateboards in his car, and any time he saw someone on a skateboard, he'd just lean out the window and yell, do a kickflip! And if they did a kickflip, he'd give them a free skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> it's just classic wholesome content, beautiful yeah. stuff. Just random guy, do a kickflip! All right, I'll do a kickflip. Here's a skateboard. See you later. Half of them didn't even know who it was who was giving them a skateboard, but... You know, I love it. I, I feel like anyone driving around yelling out of cars is generally bad. 
but if you're yelling, do a kickflip to a skater, probably okay. Yeah, we could do the same. Uh, like in like a, a, a twenty years' time, we can scream out the window, you know, do a reverse sweep and throw them a Woodstock cricket bat. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> Maybe we bloody will by the helicopter. Maybe, yeah, dropped up. Well, we get helicopters in North London. I'm not sure if this was when you were with us, Jeff, a couple of years ago, but we get helicopters overhead here constantly and we've been reliably informed to basically track drug deals. So it's quite exciting when the, all the helicopters above head, often on a Sunday night, weirdly, but you Google it or you, you put it into Twitter and, and everyone's like, ah, well, yep, drug deal, busted it's by a, the cops. It, I don't feel like it's a subtle way to track it, though. <laughs> if it, you know, you're like, all right, we want to keep an eye on these fellas. Let's just get an extremely loud air machine to hang out in the sky above them and go whoa 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 not very helpful yeah right 180 chris clark uh let me start by saying that i'm i'm not going uh, to talk about lionel tennyson i could i could for he wore cap number 180 for england he's a cricketer and a military officer whose story is worth telling indeed he captained england but he's not quite dusty enough you see uh he played okay. uh, nine test matches and and yeah, as i say he captained his country so i just don't think he quite qualifies at some point though marking a place lionel mm-hmm. tennyson very much a member of the All british right. aristocracy um he wore cap you, one you do you do lionel tennyson and i'll do alfred lord tennyson and we'll just have a tennyson off yes i think that uh, uh, i think that he is the I'll get this wrong. The nephew of Alfred Lord Tennyson. Anyway, mm-hmm. anyway. Okay. And he's the son of tennis. Yes. Uh, the bloke that mm. plays tennis, the American tennis. Oh, yeah. Um, he's the, uh, not the a MAGA a, anti-vaxxer yeah, tennis yeah, player. The lunatic MAGA. Um, yeah, I, I hope, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, everyone always, you know, just automatically goes at Novak for good reason um, when talking yeah. about what's going to happen with the Australian Open. But what about tennis? Uh-huh. It was a fucking nut job. Uh, right, yeah. so. I, I've got to say, with, with like, I think I can claim this with some version of pride. When, when Novak first, when the first anti-vax thing came up, I think I was the first person to put on the internet Novak Djokovic. Because everybody took it up after that, but I think I got in first. <laughs> There's loads of 180s, Jeff, in Test cricket. I watched one this year, Joe Roots, 180 knot at Lords. How the fuck was that in a losing team, by the way? I went back and looked at my. Oh, yeah, that's right. Joe Root made a, a peerless 180 knot out. One of the best innings mm. we've seen in the modern game. And they lost. Mm. I still can't quite mm. fathom how that happened. Uh, David Warner, who belted Joe Root, uh, made 180. Uh, it, that, that, that was during his century. He in belted se- the Indian bowling as well. He did, 2012. 159 balls that was. Not the quickest 180 in international cricket, though. I, I thought that was Jason Roy, another game that we were at, Jeff, when he made 180 against Australia in a one-dayer in 2018. But actually, Martin Guptill uh, went 12 deliveries quicker than that. At the Tron, favourite ground of mine, Hamilton in New Zealand, Seddon Park, he made 180 in 180. 138 balls against South Africa in a one-dayer in 2017. I liked the description as well. David Warner got out in that warm-up game um, and everyone's saying, oh, he got caught asleep, bad shot or whatever. And you look at the (laughs) replay and it's like Martin Guptill hanging horizontally in the air to catch him (laughs) one-handed. I think it was Glenn Maxwell who described it as he got guppied. He was like, yeah, look, he got guppied. You know, sometimes you get guppied. Um, (laughs) There's nothing you can do about it. I love that. They play so much cricket against each other. That they've got, you know, uh, they've, they've got nicknames for, for each other in the field. Uh, we were at another 180, Jeff, Joe Burns, when he made that at Monica mm-hmm. in 2019, what will probably be his final test century, sadly. All up, it's been made 13 times, 11 since 2000. So only uh, once in the 19th century, once in the 20th century, and 11 times since, which sort of skews it to a more modern conversation. Oh. The most meaningful of those, Jeff, uh, is an innings mm-hmm. that 
or really you should be doing this because you know more about this innings than anybody, but uh, Rahul Dravid uh, making 180 alongside VVS in 2001. I went back and looked at this last year in a lot of depth for the Final Frontier documentary, and I remembered bits and pieces, but not all of it. Like I remembered that mm-hmm. VVS Lachman came up to bat at number three in the second innings, but what I didn't recall was that Dravid got popped down to number six. It wasn't as though Lachman came up and everyone shuffled down one. So it was a bit of a relegation for him when he walked out uh, in the second innings, uh, remembering, of course, that you know when Ganguly was out, they were already up to 232 for four. Uh, Lakshman was nearly 100, but they were still 42 runs from parity when following on, which gives a sense of just yeah. how, how far ahead in the game Australia were. Uh, they closed day three with Javid on seven, Lakshman up to 109 and totally braining them. So they start that fourth day 20 runs behind and they finish at 315 runs ahead. Uh, they made 335 runs without losing a wicket on the fourth day at Calcutta. Uh, they walked off with Lakshman 275, Dravid 155. And then kind of amazingly, and this is the bit that we looked at, Jeff, in Final Fronts here, we're like, why did they keep batting? I mean, as if Australia <laughs> are going to chase down 315 on the final day when they've been monstered like that. Well, there's some logic to it. So, you know, less thus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, true. But there was some logic to it, and it becomes apparent when you kind of go through the highlights. So they keep batting, and Lakshman's ultimately out for 281 to McGrath and, and Dravid's run out for 180, and they, they call the whole thing off after Zahir Khan bashes 23 not out uh, in 15 balls. But the reason they set Australia 384 and not 315 is that Australia had a pop at it, like a real pop yeah. at it. And I think there was this perception in the Australian camp at the time, not unreasonably, that you you set us whatever and we'll go and make it. And had it been mm. 315, they might have done it. I mean, notwithstanding what Harbajan went on to do later in the day, but the way they start, at one point they are 74 for one in the 23rd over. Then Langer mm. walks out and bashes 28 in 21 balls. And then Harbajan turns the screws. He gets... That, well, uh, Venkatapati Raju actually gets out Mark Wall for a duck and then Bhaji gets Ponting and Gilchrist out in consecutive deliveries, both for a duck as well. So uh, Gilchrist, of course, completing his king pair. But yeah, 161 for three at T on the final day. Then Australia lose their last seven wickets in, in 25 overs. So again, it's kind of, it was closer. It was a closer run thing that I remembered it. I knew they won on day five, but I didn't kind of, I don't rem- recall it going that deep into the final oh, yeah. day, and so it did. So Harbajan takes six for 73 to go with his seven for one, two, three. And yes, I, I think it goes without saying that Dravid's 180 is the best of the lot that I've run through there. Uh, and yeah, what, it, what an was, extraordinary... It was absolutely... It was close. It was, yeah. I remember listening to it intently um, on you know on my Walkman, of course, <laughs> as was the style at the time. But maybe I'm remembering it as being a bit closer than it was, but I, I think I remember it being 12 overs to go, something like that. That's when about right. I was out yeah, there defending. Yeah. And there was still the sense that maybe Australia hang on for a draw here because, you know, McGrath had actually batted pretty well, um, just hanging in there throughout the series. There was that sense that if anyone's going to hang on, it will be Australia. And there was also, you know, like you said, even when it was 380, Everybody thought they were going to go for it. No one said the Australians will come out and shut up shop here. It was like, all right, they've got time. If they if they go after it, um, why not? They've got Hayden there batting imperiously. They've they've mm. got this side that doesn't quit. And I think, yeah, I mean, in, India were worried about that Australian team and why wouldn't you be? They'd won 16 in a row. So it was like, all right, well, 
if we're going to bowl them out, we probably only need a couple of sessions to do it if, if the track's ragging and, it, and, and things start to go wrong. But we can't give them the chance to win. Like We can't be in this position and give them any opportunity to win it. And so that was, it seems like, it seemed conservative, but it also seemed sensibly conservative. If you want to hear more about that test match, remiss of me not to plug the greatest season it was, Final Frontier documentary from last year. We spoke to Michael Kaspervitz for that episode. We also had Harsha Bogley, Adam... Gilchrist, uh, who else came on that show? Damien Fleming, Colin Miller, uh, Gavin Robertson, uh, lots of people who are involved in, in the Australia-India clashes between 1996 and 2001. That's our first number today, Chris Clark, 180. It is uh, second up. We have got a double header. One half of the double header is Matthew Johnson. The other half is the famous W.G. Rumblepants, who has been elevated up the list by virtue of having the same number. This is this is the the jeopardy of the uh, of the nerd pledge list. We don't mess with the order, except if there's a double header, you can come from right down at the bottom and suddenly be at the top. The number is five nineteen, so five dollars nineteen cents, five pounds nineteen pence. However, you want to do it. Matthew Johnson off the top uh, has not provided a suggestion, which is absolutely fine. Indeed encouraged uh, <laughs> if you don't have a particular way that you want us to go because it gives us latitude. So 5.19, maybe Matthew Johnson wants me to talk about Courtney Walsh, um, the first bowler to cross the 500 wickets mark. And, and I, I remember it being quite a, a bit of a struggle to get to the 500 and then Courtney Walsh had one last series against South Africa and just took a bunch of wickets and suddenly was was liberated by getting to the 500 and ended up at 519 um, after that final series. So, Matthew, if that's the desired answer, I can talk about Courtney Walsh more on a revisit. Um, but I, I ended up somewhere else. Now, I reckon we've talked about this test match before, Adam. It's in 1928-29. Yep. And I'm pretty sure you've talked about it, but I also feel like it was a long time ago. Okay. And maybe people won't necessarily remember. And, and there's a slightly different reason to talk about it. Partly it's that in maybe a couple of weeks ago, we talked about a different test in the same 1928-29 Ashes series. So this is when England come to Australia and bash them up. They win the first four test matches. They're up 4-0. Um, we talked about a great test match in Adelaide. That's one of those four England mm. wins, a narrow win. And then in this fifth test match, with a whitewash in the offing, in the palm of their hands, they choked. <laughs> England choked. They threw it away because they made 519 in the first innings and still lost. To this very day, there have only been six higher first innings scores by a losing team. So this sort of thing does not happen very much. Jack Hobbs, on his last trip anywhere overseas, made 142. Patsy Hendren made 95. Morris Leyland one of the Leyland brothers, I assume, made 137. But this is a timeless test match, so doesn't matter. Take your time. Australia go out to bat and spend 271.3 overs <laughs> <laughs> to make 491. And this I like because, you know, Bill Woodfull makes 102 in about 15 hours or something. And young Don Bradman, who's just into the team, makes his second career ton his highest score to date 123 he makes it twice as fast as anyone else so everyone else is scoring at strike rates of about 20 to 25 Bradman goes at 50 absolutely flying for the for the era has his foot down um Clary Grimmett comes out in the tail and makes 38 not out from 170 balls <laughs> just bloody mindedness so they made 
an England bowler called George Geary send down 81 overs going at 1.29 and over to end up with figures of five for 105 oh. from the innings. That is a, a long shift to pick up a five-wicket haul. England go around again. They've got this small lead. The same players do well. Hobbs made 65. Leyland 53 not out. They only get to 257. And I think this is why you were talking about it, Adam, because Tim Wall was a bowler who took five for 66 in that innings. He's a player who also took 10 in an innings in a Sheffield Shield game. Perhaps. Yeah, that's how we got there. We, uh, he took 10 for in a Shield game and he, he took this. We, we got to this game via his uh, 10 for in uh, first class cricket. Right, yeah, 10 in an innings, that is, not not 10 in a match. So they set uh, Australia, what is it, 200? I haven't even written it down. That's probably uh, not helpful. It's about 280, I think, 286 from memory, something like that. And no one makes a big score, So this, but the scores go 48, 18, 35, 46, 28, 57, 37, and that's enough. So everyone chips in. And the 57 and 37, they're the not-out scores, and it's Jack Ryder batting with Don Bradman. And this is why I wanted to talk about it, because also a couple of weeks ago I talked about that series with Jack Ryder crossing over. This is his last test match, and Don Bradman's just started off. And these are the first two players for Australia to average over 50 in their test careers. And after Bradman, no one does it until Greg Chappell. So it's a big gap between you know players really hitting that high mark. It's, it's the greats of the greats who can average over 50 in test cricket. But what I didn't quite realise was how close run it was for Jack Ryder. So this is his final test match. He only played 20 tests, uh, batted 32 times. And if you look at his average over his career, it starts out low, gets up through the 30s, gets up as high as 68, goes back down to 46. And then after his second last match, he's nudged it up to 50.26. He's just over the mark. So in this final test match, in the first innings, he's out for 30, which means it drops down to 49.5. So in the second innings, he's got an opportunity to get back above 50, but... He's only got a certain amount of runs to get, which means he has to be not out at the end. So even at the point where he's got 57 runs, if he gets out at that point, he'll drop back to 49.78. Bradman scores the last couple of runs, Ryder's 57 not out, and the not out takes him to 51.6 and being Australia's first 50-plus player uh, over the course of a career from his 32 innings. Uh, So that all derives from the 519 that England scored in the first innings, which gave Jack Ryder enough runs to chase to get his average back above 50 with the not out at the end of the test match. Beautifully done. Thank you, Matthew Johnson, uh, for that. And, yeah, I guess there's a symmetry there between uh, Ryder and Bradman's last test match too. Had Bradman been not out, uh, in his last test innings, of course, we all know how it ended. But if there was an mm. opportunity for him to get red ink, then in all probability he would have averaged over 100, as Ryder did, averaging over 50 in his uh, 20th and final test match in 1929. Mm. Lovely stuff. Unless he was, unless he was three not out or something, which would have been well, it wouldn't have been annoying for well, all concerned. Well, well, I suppose. Had, yeah, well, let's work through this. If Bradman was three not out, well, that's right. Bradman would have then been six nine nine nine. So what I'm, oh, no, hang on, that, that wouldn't have, no. Actually, if he was zero not out, he might must have been above 100 because it's a fact yeah, Bradman, that dismissed the that's drop. Right. He so, was above 100, yeah. then he dropped below. Yeah, so if Bradman had it been so you're right. not out in that te- in that innings, full stop, it would not have been above. Yeah, he needed to get to, yeah. um, you know, he needed to get to four runs 
and yeah, be dismissed, dismissed in order to be the even 100. Alas, yeah. not to be. Uh, WG Rumble Pants, the artist who is making a mural of any number of people uh, in the cricketing community, including you and me, Jeff, which is very lovely, says that his new pledge commemorates the performance of a dusty old Hollywood bastard. Uh, and with that, we better play the song. All right, Jeff. It's Aubrey Smith. We've touched on Aubrey before, but not in detail, uh, and we're going to get the chance to do so. Aubrey Smith, the Hollywood bastard, was born in 1863 right in the city of London, and what a life he'd go on to lead. He was taught the game by a chap known as Julius Caesar. He was a Surrey man who represented all England uh, in those early sort of pre-test times. He was actually on England's first ever trip abroad in 1859, which was to the US. Julius Caesar. I didn't know much about him. Was that actually his name? Yeah, it was. That's his name as listed on scorecards. Like Napoleon Einstein. Yeah, I I suppose so. I suppose so. Or Sachin Baby in in more modern times. Uh, So uh, Aubrey Smith, uh, Cambridge Blue, aristocrat, leg cutter. You know why we've talked about Aubrey Smith before, Jeff? He's known as Around the Corner um, because he was the guy that had the bowling run-up which started looking the other way over at mid-off and, and you know so goes the so goes the story that sometimes I felt as though he was starting from in line with the stumps and would run all the way out to mid-off and then turn the corner and run back towards the stumps so he had this very wow. unusual curve nearly behind the umpire. vibes yeah yeah but I suppose this is what he was known for he was a Sussex star uh, through the 1880s made his first uh, class debut in 1882 and got on England's an, an inaugural tour of South Africa in 1888-89 and he cleaned up there. Then he gets a game against South Africa, which wasn't recognised as a test then, but was retrospectively, Mm -hmm. as often was the case uh, in in that time. He took seven for 61 in the test match, including five for 19 in the first dig as they bowled out South Africa for 84. That was at Port Elizabeth. Um, Given his stature and status on the tour, he was actually captain that week. He had the armband on in a match that became a test match later. It was on matting. It was over in two days. It was easy money uh, for the professionals over there, I assume, all the money they would have made touring around South Africa, getting the job done in a day and a half. But, I mean, on Test Taboo, he captained England because that that match got Mm -hmm. later recognised as a Test match. And that was it for him. Didn't play another Test match on the tour. He liked it so much in South Africa that he stuck around for a while and made a shitload of money as a stockbroker. Returned to London in 1896, his cricket career in the rear vision mirror by this stage. And now he was a thespian. He was on stage in the West End. Press fast forward to the 1920s. Uh, he was a film star. Um, he used to stick to what he knew, is what they said. So thus, he played the Duke of Wellington on three occasions in different films. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then, wow. And then by 1932, uh, he was living in America. Um, he, he went to Hollywood. It was body line times, so there was a lot of cricket, uh, a lot of interest in the game, even in America. And he decided to f- uh, to found the Hollywood Cricket Club. Uh, he got English grass sent over to Los Angeles in order to put together like a proper venue at Griffith Park. A lot of people send grass to Los yeah, Angeles. This is true. It didn't last the test of time as a cricket ground. By helicopter. <laughs> but it did go on uh, to become 
an Olympic venue in 1984 when Los Angeles hosted the Games. It was where they did the equestrian. This was previously at the home ground of Hollywood Cricket Club, but he'd have all sorts come through to play. He had um, P.G. Woodhouse, who we talked about uh, a couple of months ago. He came up on the show a few times recently, actually. Lawrence Olivier, to pick but two sort of high-profile people that came through. Uh, The 1936-37 touring English who'd been to Australia came back via LA and played a game uh, for the Hollywood Cricket Club, sort of as a touring team. And as for our man, Aubrey Smith, he was quite an accomplished actor. He starred in a film alongside Elizabeth Taylor. He's the only cricketer with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In the end, he made it to a long innings of 85 before passing away of pneumonia in Beverly Hills in, in 1948. But he was a test cricketer. He did take seven for 61 in his only test match, including figures of five for 19 uh, at the first time of asking. And his only test match was where he captained England. A remarkable story. Cricket's most famous actor, I suppose you would say, Aubrey Smith. And so the guy who was taught by Julius Caesar yes. made us think of Napoleon Einstein, then played the Duke of Wellington, yes. <laughs> which links you back to Napoleon Einstein. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Someone should have made that link in his obituary I was reading. And in Beverly Hills, so is 90210, if anyone wants to send us a nerd pledge of $902.10, um, A, that'd be great, and, and B, we could get deep into some Beverly Hills 90210 I'll, I will tell you, I'll, I'll do a fictionalised account of... After two seasons of 90210, it was going so well. Mm-hmm. It was going so well that they made a summer series, which was basically set uh, when they were all at the beach club that year. And I'll do a fictional mm-hmm. account of, of Steve Sanders and his beach volleyball season that he had that year, which seemed to be relatively <laughs> prolific the way they portrayed it. This was when they sent... Um, he was the Bradman of beach volleyball. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They sent Donna and Brenda away to Paris for the series, which meant that mm-hmm. Dylan, who was going out with Brenda at the time, got busy with Jenny Garth. Um, with Ke- Jenny Garth. Kelly was the character. Jenny Garth was the actor. I, just for a second, I thought you said Jenny Gunn. And I was like, really? <laughs> well, that, this is a whole crossover. That'd be something if Luke Perry, rest in peace, uh, <laughs> before his time on on the earth had, had, had concluded, had, had pitched up to Jenny Gunn. Not to be. But this was uh, a massive controversy, the summer season. So, Well, yeah. Jenny Gunn would have pitched up. She never dropped short, Jenny Gunn. <laughs> always pitched up. <laughs> All right, Jeff, we better move off 519. We've got another doubleheader for 460. I'm going to go to you first for Robert Disney. Uh, Michael Fallon's the other 460. But starting with Robert, there's a clue. I'll give no oh, hint. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. We've, we've, we've botched the name again. This, so this is Robert Dinsey, oh. who previously we announced as Robert Dinsbury on the show to the great amusement of Robert's wife, who he said now addresses him as Dinsbury on an ongoing basis oh, because no. that's how we talked about it. So now we've got Robert Disney in there as well. So, Robert Dinsey, you have another alter ego if you want to, to add that to your existing um, cartel. Yeah, righto, Walt, although I wouldn't want to compare anyone to Walt Disney. Um, I'll give you no hint this time other than to say it's really just 46 rather than 460, but that was A, below the minimum pledge, that's true, and B, stingy. Well, that's your interpretation. I'm not going to call you stingy. Mm. Anyone that makes a contribution, big or small, to what we're doing here is a valued member of our of our community. Then there's a second bit that comes in later saying a bit of a giveaway for a number you haven't got to just yet, but I'm delighted to say I owe you a gentle 10p pay rise. Here's to many more. So Jeff, you went sleuthing around uh, the date of the pledge and what it all related to. Yeah. Okay. So this clue came in on the 12th of July. And it was a day after. There were several. There were a bunch of matches being played. England women were playing 
West Indies were playing Australia in some one-day games. Ireland were playing South Africa, a bunch of cricket going on. So Robert Dinsbury, if I may, Dinsbury. I love it. It's, it sort of sounds like it's like the name that some guy in a late 50s movie, black and white British movie, would have for his, his clerk or something. Dinsbury. Dinsbury. Play, play I by want or, this report on my desk Smith. by the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, sir, that will take all night. Yes, it will. Go on, Dinsbury. Now, yeah, so, so, so Dinsbury, if I may, has got 46 for us that has gone up to 47 because if we add 10p to make it 470, then it becomes 47. So I was like, okay, what goes up that's good? Well, Jack Ryder would tell you batting averages. So mm-hmm. that's where I started looking. Is there anyone who in that period of time went from 46 to 47? Mm, all right. I'm going to show the working here because this is this was something I was trying to figure out. Sanju Sampson averaged 46 in one-day cricket this year but only played one time and made 46. Tim David went up to an average of 46.5, which would round up to 47 in T20s for Singapore, but that happened in March 2020, so that's too early, and he was never on 46. Nicholas Puran got to 47 from 46 in some one day as against Australia in July, but that happened on July 26. So that was after the follow-up clue came through. Can't be that. Went further afield. Satyadeep Ashwath Narayana played two T20 matches for Hungary um, in the inter the, in the Continental Cup, I think it was against Luxembourg, maybe, and went. From an average of 6 to an average of 47 by making 41 not out. So that doesn't go via 46. That doesn't work. Moaidi Ami Swedi moved to 47.5 for Tanzania, but that was after averaging 95 with one dismissal and then making a duck. So that's going downwards. Doesn't work. Barbara Azam was at 47 in T20s around that time, went up to 48 and then back to 46. Nearly, not quite. Uh, Fakhar Zaman went down to 47 in one-day international cricket, not up. So I couldn't find anything with the averages that worked. And then I thought, okay, maybe it's career wickets. Looking at the games around that time, I was like, Ireland, South Africa, hang on, who's got 47 wickets for Ireland? Craig Young has 47 wickets for Ireland. Ah. But Craig Young got the 46th wicket on July 16th, four days too late. So it can't be that. Well, actually, it couldn't have even been that because he didn't get the 47th until September. Uh, Ema Richardson for the Irish women's team also has 47 but went to 47 in late August. No good. AJ Tyre went from 44 to 47 T20 wickets for Australia, but that was also in August. So I went to look at test match cricket. Uh, weirdly enough, there are three current players on 47 test match wickets. Sam Curran, Anrich Norquier and Colin de Grandhomme of the large man. Curran, can't be Curran, went from 44 to 47 in August. Norquio was on 46 and went to 47, but that was in mid-June. So unless Robert Dinsey wasn't looking, wasn't paying attention to the numbers, it couldn't be that or it could be that, could it? But then maybe Robert's number came in earlier in the year and got brought up as a double header. Maybe it came in with the revised numbers in March sometime. Colin de Grandhomme on the 1st of March, went from 46 to 47 test wickets. I think this pledge must have come in a bit later in March. But maybe, maybe when Colin got Virat Kohli LBW handy wicket and went to 47, yeah. maybe Robert Dinsey knew that Colin had 46 and then checked back a couple of weeks later and found it was 47. Yeah. I'm not quite there, but that could, I mean, that could be it. 
Is it related to Colin DeGrandholm's 47 test wickets? Maybe. Robert, you'll have to let me know. Jump on the Discord page for Nerd Pledge in the channel there or send us a DM and we'll come back to it on the revisits because that's what we do. We never let a number lie. I I loved your workings. I also enjoyed your pronunciation. We each have our strengths and weaknesses. We've been working together for a long time. You're good at that. I am not good at that. I'll never be good at that. I'll try and do it cold now. I'll look away from the screen. Now I'll look at the screen. Let's try it. Satyadeep Ashwath Narayana. Not bad. Better than I thought I'd be at the first swing. Much as it is for for Robert Dinsey, better that time, in keeping with the theme of my bad pronunciations, I'm also going to be referring Michael Fallon's 460 to the Discord page. However, I'll show my workings too. So I interpret what Michael Fallon says here. Mm -hmm. This number happened in a game which I'd argue is best remembered for something that happened at the crowd at night, as it must be a day-nighter, one-day international. So that's helpful in a way because if we're looking for something to happen in the crowd, I might look at the 1971 Sydney Ashes test when the crowd lost their shit after Jon Snow whacked Terry Jenner with a bumper where Ray Illingworth had to lead the team off the field when a drunk went at Jon Snow where 190 fans were kicked out, 14 were arrested, probably should have been 460 arrested watching back some of that tape. (laughs) And it can't be 1879 at the same ground, SCG, uh, when Billy Murdoch was given out and the crowd again kicked off. They rioted, uh, the SCG crowd. I thought maybe the World Cup semi of 1996 when Sri Lanka made 251 for eight. uh, And then... That was a pretty good effort considering uh, Jabogal Srinath took two wickets in the first over. But then you press fast forward a few hours and at 120 for eight in the 35th over, some of the Indian fans set about trying to burn down Eden Gardens and they had to forfeit the match, which was a fairly unedifying way for that uh, match to end. The famous scenes of Clive Lloyd walking out as match referee and signalling to both Mm. captains that he was calling the whole thing off. See, everybody criticises social media. They say, oh, social media, it's a cesspit, it's toxic. We don't have to burn down stadiums anymore. People just get online and yell at you, you know? Back in the day, there was no way to get online and yell at you. Well, I suppose that's right. I would like to see the correlation between effigies burned and the (laughs) proliferation of social media because it's it's the modern-day effigy is what happens on social... Because we used to get those headlines, didn't we, when we were kids growing up Mm -hmm. about... Awful things happen. People, to people throwing stones at Robin Utapa's house or something. Yeah, exactly. You don't see as much of that these days. So maybe social media has uh, funneled all of that activity uh, into seeing um, despots elected around the world. But alas, I can't see 460 or 46 anywhere on that scorecard from 1996. Uh, I went forward to 1999 at the MCG, that one-day international, uh, which I was at. I remember it for a number of reasons, not least the fact that it was the day that Bill Clinton was giving um, some testimony in his impeachment uh, proceedings uh, through with Monica Lewinsky. I've started watching the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the FX series, American Crime Story, about the Lewinsky-Clinton scandal, mm-hmm. and it's very, very good. But yes, I remember sitting at the top of the Olympic stand that day and getting very badly sunburnt and just being enamoured with 90,000 people doing the Mexican wave and, you know, Shane Warne in the helmet, of course, walking mm-hmm. down to Bay 13. It was my first kind of real experience of that, and I loved every bit of it. So, But again, mm-hmm. nothing to do with 460 or 446 on that on that card so what i'm going to do is throw this over to discord for michael fallon uh, the clue again the number happened in a game that was best remembered for something that happened in the crowd at mm-hmm. night 
So go can at I, it for 460. Can I tell you a, a story that came to mind when you, you mentioned this? You, you, may, you may enjoy this. Uh, some, some of our listeners may. So, I, you know, I've known a lot of interesting people during my life. Um, and, and at one point in my life, I knew some people who enjoyed... Well, this story was passed on to me, but they enjoyed um, experimenting with various uh, psychoactive substances uh, of, of a quite an intense nature. You knew, pe- you knew people yeah. who, who, who dabbled yeah. in yeah. psychotics. You, of all people, knew... No. Yeah. Now, now, I'm not talking about, you know, a drop off of grass to LA. I'm talking about the more reality-bending kind of yeah. um, end of the spectrum. And one of, there, were, there were, you know, a, a small group of them who enjoyed doing this thing which they called ninja runs where they would dress up in black and like put on a ninja outfit and then ingest what they wanted to ingest and then you know run through the city at night and you know climb construction sites and be ninjas you know it was like a cool fun thing that they would do is run around and one of these gentlemen uh, was running around through the city and got into an underground car park at one of the hotels and was like hurdling over cars and running around the place when like bang this door opens and like six guys in suits with guns run out screaming at him like get on the ground get on the ground gets arrested gets taken into custody um gets interrogated for about eight hours while the duration of the effects of this um particular chemical experiment uh reach their peak and then start to wear off and is eventually released gets home what the hell happened Bill Clinton was in town giving a speech at a summit in Melbourne <laughs> and was staying at that hotel where the Secret Service on the security cams had noticed someone in a ninja suit with face coverings <laughs> and plastic swords running through the underground car park of the hotel. Had he been strolling through the same car park um, scantily clad, as it were, he would have been invited up uh, <laughs> by the great communicator. <laughs> it's all about communication. Um, so, look, Michael, we haven't solved your clue, but the good news is um, you came out of the hat. You win the opportunity to be the Father Christmas of beers. You can give away a Brick Lane slab to somebody, anybody. It could be you could be somebody else. Anybody in Australia can get a case of Brick Lane beer. And and as the Secret Service found with uh, the Acid Ninja who was having a good time on the streets of the city until venturing down the wrong laneway, you can get together with a one love pale ale. It is all about the paleness. Soft-bodied, golden straw in colour, a soft, delicate haze from the malted wheat in the brew as you sit down and laugh with the Secret Service gentlemen about the misunderstanding that you've uh, just enjoyed together. So uh, bricklanebrewing.com, that's where they are. They're the lovely brewery who support all the work that we do on The Final Word. And uh, you will get a case of whatever variety of your choice sent to you. Keep an eye on your email. It's coming your way. I can tell you that's exactly what Stuart Akers has done, uh, one of our uh, supporters and patrons. He sent us a photo earlier. Awesome beer from Brick Lane. Uh, Thanks 
to us uh, for the maxi discount. Uh, highly recommend this for stout lovers. It's the the Baba Yaga. I think I'm if I'm reading correctly. In any uh-huh. case, it's a stout uh, that he's picked up from Brick Lane Brewing. Uh, thanks to our maxi offer. That's now ended, but a lot of people got involved with that. So we're going to do another uh-huh. one soon. Another offer code soon. But between times, now that everyone's out of lockdown in Melbourne. Uh, well, I hope that everyone's out of lockdown by now in terms of what you're permitted to do and all the rest of it. Uh, that should mean soon enough you can get the, the Brick Lane beers on tap at Queen Victoria Market or at their uh, their place of business in Dandenong South. Uh, and, of course, all of their beers are in bottle shops across the country. And bricklanebrewing.com is the place to buy it online. Great supporters of The Final Word. Proud to be in association with them. All right, next number. It is $1.98 and it comes in from Debashish Biswas, who has set us on many a winding trail before <laughs> on Storytime. Yes. Hi, Deb. Hope you're doing well, mate. Uh, this clue is for the other test left arm spinner, a dusty old bastard, was that John Arlett had a famous commentary line about a particular passage of play. Although educated at Cambridge and a holder of a blue, he did not win representative colours in cricket. The line was about a particular passage of play with a play on words using his surname. And Jeff, before we go uh, any further, I should uh-huh. say that, that the very sad news has come through uh, in the last hour or so that Ashley Mallett passed away today, age 76. Oh, nice. uh, speaking of great spinners, uh, wonderful writers as well. Um, a, a private um, battle that he fought against cancer uh, and unfortunately uh, it has got the better of him but um, a truly great Australian spinner uh, between 1968 and 1980. Uh, we'll spend some more time talking about Ashley Mallet in our next uh, longer edition of The Final Word but yeah, just caught that bit of news before we recorded and thought I might just drop that in there given uh, we're talking about fine test spinners uh, thanks to Debashish here. I've read a lot of Ashley Mallet's pieces particularly about Clary Grimmett. He mm. wrote about my favourite spinner a lot and so, you know, that is... Um, that that's a crossover that I've had, and I particularly enjoyed over the last couple of years listening to the um, the chatter from the Indian team in Test matches, where Ravichandran Ashwin has the nickname Ashley. They call him Ashley from behind the stumps. Bold Ashley, and it's for Ashley Mellor. They've <laughs> named him after the Australian spinner. Um, it's it's better than Elfie Langer, and it's better than Gary Lyon um, being being called Ashley Mellor for Ash. You know, Ash Ashwin became Ash became Ashley. Uh, so you, you'll hear Richard Punt a lot of the time bowling Ashley, bowling Ashley. That's nice. I didn't so know that. It's, it's, a, it's a nice modern tribute to yeah, a, a great cricketer, but also a wonderful thinker on the game. Ashley Mellor, uh, seventy six years of age, passed away today. So we're talking about old spinners and Debashish, I'm pleased to say I think I've deciphered your clue. We are talking, we can't hit the DOB music because uh, because Adam's done that once and once is enough, but we're talking about Tufty Man, Norman Bertram Fleetwood Man, whose nickname was Tufty because he had a tuft of hair that stuck up when he was a kid and, and it stuck with him to the point that he's listed as Tufty on cricket scorecards. Um, you, you've got to love when, when that sticks with you from a name that someone gave you when you were eight years old or whatever it was. I was reading an article about Tufty Man, who was a South African spinner um, just after World War II, 
And and I read this quote that said, having lived behind the false wall of a pigsty as an escaped prisoner of war in northeastern Italy during the latter stages of the Second World War, he impressed in the post-war trials, and I immediately thought, oh, the Nuremberg trials, was he involved in those? No. <laughs> South African cricket trials, um, different kinds of post-war trials. But, but uh, Norman Bertram Fleetwood Man debuted for South Africa in 1947 after having been a soldier in a POD. So uh, he was born in Benoni Hazelhurst in in South Africa. Um, He was the son of a mine doctor, which again I read as Nuremberg related. Mine doctor, you know, (laughs) um, in you come. (laughs) Time to to face the jury, buddy. Um, He... Before the war, he went to Cambridge and the blue that he got was for playing golf. He, he won an amateur championship in South Africa when he was 16 years old. Everyone got a and blue. Then, this, this is our third Cambridge blue in the space of half an hour. Oh, oh, I mean, they just handed them out. Yeah. Tic Tacs. Um, well, I tell you what, when you, get, when you get your New South Wales blue, they give you a Cambridge blue in the same envelope. <laughs> um, so when he was about 20, I suppose, at the start of, uh, start of the war, he joined an anti-tank regiment got dispatched to North Africa and ended up being captured by the Germans when the guns that he was using got damaged when they were fighting near Tobruk. So he was sent to Italy working as a labourer, which most of the POWs were. And then when the Italians surrendered in, I guess that's late 1943, when Mussolini gets knocked off by a coup and the Italians put in the surrender and there's this couple of weeks of turmoil before the Germans come in and occupy Italy. And so in that period of time, a lot of POWs um, bunked off. They, they headed for various uh, places of refuge and, and some of them, like Tufty Man, went into hiding in the Italian countryside and got helped out by Italian partisans and, and local farmers and so on who fed them and, and hid them. And this is presumably how he found this hiding place um, behind a false panel in a pigsty where he was uh, hiding out with a couple of other former POWs for nine months in this hiding spot until the American advance um, overtook the lines and, and got them out. So all of this has happened. He's had all of this traumatic life experience and he's only 26 years old when he first plays test cricket in 1947. He's a left-arm spinner. He's, he's accurate. He doesn't turn it much, but he just lands it on the spot again and again and again. So he has a tour of England. Then he plays in South Africa against England and Australia and makes another trip to England in 1951, um, plays 19 tests all up. And the famous John Arlott moment that Debeshish referenced was in South Africa in that 1948-49 tour when there's a player called George Mann, M-A-N-N, playing for England, and there's Tufty Mann, M-A-N-N, playing for South Africa and tormenting him. Like, the, the George Mann is struggling. He doesn't know what to do in this innings and eventually he gets out and Arlott says, ah, yes, it is man's inhumanity to man. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So, yeah, he gets that other England trip after that, um, finishes off his 19 test matches, going at 1.98 runs and over across his whole career. He only played in one win. That was the sort of era that, that you played in for South Africa, a bit, a bit of a struggling team and in, a, in an era with a lot of draws. That one win in 1951 at Trent Bridge, he took four for 54 in the fourth innings to bowl out England, chasing 186. Um, He stayed on in England after the end of the tour. Most of the players went home. He stayed on for medical treatment because he was sick and he had an operation and 
he had he must have had stomach cancer because that he had an operation on his stomach, and he died of cancer uh, at the age of thirty one. So having gone through the war, having gone through hiding, having survived, and then having had this sudden, uh, brief but flourishing test career, he ended up dying uh, at at such a young age. And it's a it's a really bittersweet story. But uh, that is the story, Debashish of Tufty Man. Thanks for raising it, Debashish. That's definitely uh, worth telling uh, on the show. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine getting out of those circumstances, having been a POW for so long, and then, and then being asked to play? I mean, I know this is a bit of an oft-used Keith Miller, um, uh, you know, quote about yeah. you know what what real pressure is um, compared to the the playing field. But it, this, that must have been thoroughly joyous in the brief time that he got to play international cricket, having gone through such a traumatic time uh, during the war. It would have been the case for many cricketers, I'm sure. But, yeah, having it spelled out in such graphic terms as you did there um, and such brutal terms for him and then only to die a couple of years on, that that, that really is tragic. Uh, Tufty man. Uh, thanks for telling us that story, Jeff, and thanks to Debashish for being an ongoing and dependable uh, contributor on great tales on story time. Uh, next up, uh, we have, unfortunately... Uh, uh, a, a, a story which has a similar conclusion. Uh, Harry Chapman has uh, sent through 236. Uh, it's Dusty Old Bastard. I'm not going to play the music again because we played it already once mm-hmm. before, but believe me when I say that I thought of Chesney immediately when I saw 236 on the basis that 236, as we said a couple of weeks ago, if you've got a number anywhere between about 220 and 240, there's a very high probability you're going to get a Dusty Old Bastard. And this is about... <laughs> It's I a must dusty say, old show. It's a dusty it's old show. A dusty old episode. It is. It is a dusty old show. And I have to say, with this particular dusty old bastard, it's about as dusty as they get. By that I mean there was very little information to go on uh, for a man by the name of Harry Smith who wore test cap uh, 236 for England. He was a wicketkeeper from Bristol. We touched on him very briefly uh, about a year ago, but um, he he was born in 1891. He was a staple of the Gloucestershire team in the 1920s after missing a chunk of his career, which started in 1912, just before the First World War. Uh, Like many of our dusty old bastards of late, uh, he missed uh, a four or five year slab in the middle there uh, due to the war. But he did get to play at the highest level in the first ever test match that West Indies played uh, in England in 1928. So Percy Chapman's team, including Sutcliffe, Jardine, Hammond, uh, made 401. Our man Harry Smith batted at number nine as the wicketkeeper, only made seven, but he was bowled by a great, Leary Constantine, playing in his first ever test match, one of his four wickets on, on test debut. Uh, in the end, Harry Smith made way for Harry Elliott, so a bit of a, a bit of a theme here, given mm. uh, that our pledge came in from Harry Chapman. And so it goes. So a lot of wicketkeepers used in that era. As we've learnt, there was not much job security if you're a stumper for England in the 20s and 30s. It's... Um it's a slightly unfortunate thing, but any time Leary Constantine's name comes up, I just think of that. Is it Keanu Reeves in that movie called Constantine? Um, it's something about he's like an angel or a devil or something like that. It's a very terrible film. But, okay. Um, yeah, that's that's what comes to mind. Oh, I wonder if we, whether, Sadly, whether it was Constantine or Constantine because I still don't think we've got a definitive pronunciation mm. uh, on the great Baron's name. Back to Harry Smith. In 1932, he missed a season through illness. And by this stage, he, he's, he's turned 40. Uh, Wisden wrote of that. Smith's absence meant something more than the loss of a thoroughly dependable wicketkeeper and batsman capable of getting runs when runs were most needed. Because perhaps unconsciously, his fellow professionals had come to regard him as their father. And 
In an unassuming way, he was a source of great strength to his captain on the field. His value was equally marked in the dressing room and on long journeys, which continually had to be faced. So he missed the whole season, and that's what they said in 1933 of him. He got back in 1935 at age 43, but never really recovered. Uh, He passed away in 1937 from that illness aged 46. Uh, He played 402 times at first class level, the majority of those uh, for Gloucestershire, making 13,000 plus runs, 10 centuries, all while taking 457 catches and completing 265 stumpings. And he did have that England cap from 1928 at Lords against the West Indies, number 236, the late Bristol stumper, Harry Smith. 265 stumpings to 457 catches. That's a lot. Yeah, I thought that too. He must have had some... They must have had some freakish spinners operating. Yeah, who would have been who would have um, been Gloucestershire's principal spinner through the twenties? I don't know the answer to that. Wasn't uh, wasn't the uh, wasn't the the left arm the jazz saxophone? Who did Charlie Parker play for? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, maybe but he, no, he was northern, wasn't he? he was yeah, Charlie Parker. Cha- no, no, you're right. You're spot on. Gloucestershire, very good from you. Gloucestershire. Uh, yeah, so he he made uh, Charlie Parker. First class career spans 1903 to 1935. So, yeah, that stands to reason with his slow left arm orthodox that he would have been beating the outside edge plenty, uh, yeah, and feeding Harry Smith plenty of stumping. So that's the first of uh, our second doubleheader today. Our third doubleheader, sorry, on on two, three, six. And, Jeff, uh, you've got the final story uh, for the final new number of today for Kieran Costello. It comes with a clue. Kieran says, the number is part of a match that I'd like to know more about, one that involved a couple of very rare occurrences. Okay, so part of our doubleheader, Kieran Costello, 236. A bit of a perambulation here. Um, we've talked about Sunil Gavaskas, 236 before. That's not a very interesting match against the Windies in Chennai in 1983, I think it was. Uh, that was a draw, not notable as far as I can tell, except that Sunil Gavaska leading the team, a guy who opened the batting 203 times, out of 214 innings in his career, randomly in that test match decided to drop himself down to number four and then made an unbeaten double ton. That's that's his only innings at number four what? in test cricket. Why? Yeah. I don't know. He op- like he opened before that, he opened after that. Just that the the best I can figure is that in that match, like yeah, it was in India, but they're facing Andy Roberts, Malcolm Marshall, Michael Holding, Ooh. and maybe he figured it, it's that India thing where the new ball is useful for about eight overs before it turns into a, a, a bundle of old socks, and so maybe it's like avoid if you know you're the best player in the team, avoid that first burst and then come in and, and profit later. Sounds uh, like he hit himself to me. Yeah, and then ended up making two hundred. <laughs> They'll have to withdraw that out. cake they gave him on commentary when they were. All- <laughs> That cake on commentary when they were all fawning over him, when they were when they were taking turns at explaining why, um, why they were basically trying to make sure they kept getting commentary gigs with the BCCI one after another, debasing themselves um, in that final test match earlier in the year. Mm. Maybe they'll have to withdraw the cake. I'm sorry if you hit yourself at four for a test, all better off. <laughs> You're. <laughs> Your your um, internet's about to explode horribly. When, when you look at when you look at the guy's career, I mean, he's has an extraordinary has done some extraordinary things in the game. I think it's easy to forget that when uh, when when they're mostly around before our time. But yeah, th- there's that bizarreness that he doesn't have an average at number four because he had one innings and it was two thirty six not out. Um, so he also played one not out innings, batting at number seven, number eight, and number nine. So he doesn't have an average for any of those. Right. But you know, 
almost everything else was was opening the batting. Nothing to do with Gavaska, this number, but I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> so that's what we do on this show. Uh, team scores. So I started looking at matches, uh, test matches specifically, where teams have made 236. Now, you'll like this because we like to talk about sequences where something doesn't happen and then it happens a lot. Teams being bowled out for 236, Adam, in a test match. It happened up until the year 2000, nine times in 130 years, right? So that's an, on average once every 14 and a half years. Okay. And then in the space of two years, Zimbabwe and only Zimbabwe, <laughs> no one else makes it in this time, Zimbabwe makes it four times in two years. <laughs> Which year is this? Nine Which year are we on here? <laughs> 2000 to 2002. Right. Okay. Okay. So nine times in 130 years from everybody and then four times in two years from one team oh, while nobody else does. That must have been so satisfying when it came up on your screen. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sequence. It has nothing to do with the, the solving the number either. But So I was looking <laughs> at notable matches with a 236, uh, maybe India in Joburg in 2006 when Sreesanth Th- um, burned through South Africa for 84. Bowled out South Africa at home for 84. Like One of the great fifers, Graham Smith, Hashim Ambla, Jacques Callas, Mark Boucher, Sean Pollock. That's a pretty decent five-wicket haul. And then India made 236 and, and set them a million and, and won. Uh, funnily enough, since you mentioned John Snow earlier, when he took the seven for 40 at mm-hmm. the SCG in 1971 in the fourth innings, uh, in the second innings, Australia had made 236 with um, Ian Redpath, who we talked about last week, top scored with 66. The clue about Ian Redpath last week was about six and six. So, you know, what do you know? Things come together. And there's the New Zealand game at the Oval in 1999 when they beat England. That was quite a notable result when Chris Cairns did a bit of a Botham, took five for 31, bowled them out for 150-odd and then made 80 from 93 balls, hitting four sixes to set up a lead, one of those freakish all-round individual matches. Um, but the thing about this number from Kieran is he says it's part of a match you'd like to know more about, but I don't know which match. There are any number of matches that involve 236s, Kieran. So I'm, I'm going to need some cluage uh, to take me closer to the source and, and then I can tell you the story that you long to hear. That's good. I like that. We can return to it next week, Kieran, with the match in question. Let us know on Discord or in the Patreon DMs. If you like what we do on the Final Word story time. if you like the fact that we've spent... More than an hour talking about the history of the game. Be part of it. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. It helps us not only fund the show, but learn a lot about the game and and prompts a lot of fabulous conversations uh, with members of our community. I think we're up to 650 people now or something like that, which is really very cool. Uh, So thank you to everyone who's got on board recently. We've put a bit of a gap in Jimmy for the time being. I know we uh, get to the end of the month in two days and that might mean we slip behind Jimmy again. In fact, entirely likely we will based on the way that credit cards inspire. The The ongoing tussle. Uh, But but with everyone that drops off, it seems as though at least one or more will sign back up. So, And many people whose credit cards expire then subsequently uh, get a message from Patreon and Put another pledge in, which is cool. Because every time you put a new pledge and, in, uh, you can get yourself back in the queue and we can tell your story. It's, it's how it works. And, and the, the more we do, the more we can, you know, if we can push up to the 700s or so, then the more latitude it gives us to maybe do some really outrageous shit during the Ashes summer. You know, it gives us the possibility to say 
there are things that won't be beyond us uh, to be able to afford to do. We're, we're, we're kicking a few ideas around, yep. but everybody who backs the show um, helps us do more and better and more fun things with it. We love you all, as Jeff Finnick said. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Let's do a few revisits, Jeff. Not loads and loads today because we have to prepare for a, a, a another another daily show, <laughs> so we can't spend too long on the revisits. However, uh, we will start with Joel Emerson. This is a good one. Uh, one seventy-seven, uh, Jeff. You talked about Dino making one hundred and seventy-seven in the same Test match, and you you thought you mm-hmm. had this licked. You thought you Joel had, said it's you, two numbers. <laughs> he said it's one seven seven, and it's two numbers. And, and you I was thought, like, what else is it going to be? You have absolutely Dino. smashed it. And as it turns out, it's not Dino. It's even better. Uh, it is even better. It's Betty Wilson, and I'm filthy that I didn't get this because I know about this test match and I somehow just didn't link the kinds of the numbers because, well, it'll become obvious in a moment. Against England in 1958, Betty Wilson, the Australian great all-rounder. Now, Australia get bowled out for 38 in the first innings. 38. Betty top scores with 12. And then... She turns around and bowls out England for 35. How do you like that for a turnaround? <laughs> and she takes seven for seven. Seven wickets for seven runs. It is seven runs for seven wickets. It's the same wherever you are in the world, including the last three wickets as a hat trick. So seven for seven with a hat trick, Betty. And then <laughs> pops into bat again. No one else is doing much with the bat. Betty comes in in the middle order and makes an even 100 runs in less than three hours. So good clip. 100 even out of 202, then comes on to bowl again, having set them 200-odd to win, picks up another four for nine, England a 76 for eight, and it's a bloody draw. (laughs) They ran out of time because they only had three-day tests. The first day was a washout. So in two days, she managed to get them to the brink of this result. But the thing that really burns me about this is they had a rest day. Day one's a washout. They play on day two. Then they have a rest day and then they play day three. So if they just got on the field on day three, well, obviously the game wouldn't have turned out the same way because uh, that's the sliders paradox universe. A different thing would have happened. But still, they didn't use the time at their disposal because presumably women can't play three days in a row or their uterus is It's the the playing on the Sabbath nonsense, isn't it? They'd all have their rest day. I was talking about, I was was doing an interview the other day about the 86-87 Ashes in a documentary Mm -hmm. that's that's going up soon. Helped a lot by story time, I should say, the stuff I've learned about that series uh, um, over the years. Anyway, and we talked about rest days. I mean, it seems farcical, doesn't it, that as recently, I think as 1991, they would all just not play on the Sunday and in, in, in mm-hmm. the case of England, they'd all go out to Beefy's place, have a barbecue, get on the last for 30 hours and come back and play on the Monday. I mean, you know, some life. It's bizarre to think that was built in, baked in uh, to the rhythm of a test match until like, you know, 30 years ago. Crazy. <laughs> this is a rhythm of a test match. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but look, what do you think God is going to be angrier about? You played on a Sunday or that... Betty Wilson produced that performance and then ended up with England 76 for eight and they didn't get a win. (laughs) They didn't deserve it. It's not like they stuck it out and hung on for the draw. They just ran out of time. So sort it out. Five-day test matches for women, please. Uh, That's with 177 from Joel Emmonson. Finally dusted. The one consolation for me is that Joel says hypercourse didn't work it out either. (laughs) So... You know, if, if, you, if, if, if the great statistician <laughs> on the women's game didn't get it, I feel slightly better about it. Uh, next up, we've got Sean Ton, uh, who 
sent it an even ton, 100. We talked about the clue was to do with Southeast Melbourne Link, someone that enjoyed a dart. Um, there was a clue in there about something else that drew us towards Shane Warne. Uh, and we read out through Warney's website a number of things which were hilarious and you can go back and listen to Jeff uh, going through that. Sean got back in touch and loved the fact that we were um, talking about Danny Nong and Hallam inside of that and he hinted uh, that might be part of the clue and then Jeff, he picked it up with a further clue. Right, so here we go. Um, yep, enjoyed the Shane Warne profile. Did Sean, uh, sort of reminded him of the 12th man. Oh, I'm sure Warney's copywriter would like to hear that. Whilst you're on the right track with punching darts, you'll have to head further south to the Bass Coast, a small former coal mining town that Trevor Marmalade <laughs> once translated to missed the turn off to Phillip Island to find the birthplace of this cricketer. His feat took place on the other side of the world in the early days of T20 cricket. This all-rounder's innings is also a bannerman. Hmm. Okay. Mm. Um, he also said, I was on a run while listening to this episode and had to go back and re-listen to a portion of your answer due to being swooped by a magpie and a plover at the same time. Shat myself, <laughs> but it made for good stats reading on the Garmin app. So he did a lot of extra Ks, <laughs> did, did Tunza, trying to avoid the local bird life that was trying to take him out while listening to his nerd pledge answer. Thank you, Tunza. I, I told him as well that my one of my best mates at school who I played cricket with, cricketer Sean Tung and I thought for a moment this might have been him but no it's very much Tunza not Tungy as Sean Tung was known uh, 100 okay so it's definitely the freak right <laughs> if it's a cricketer uh, from from the Bass Coast it's got to be uh, one faggy zone uh, Ian Harvey uh, who played for Gloucestershire but the Gloucestershire zone I'll tell you what between two, 1999 and 2006 we'll come back to that and Victoria to given the number was 100 um, I know that it's not this but it provided me with an opportunity to revisit something that I've talked about briefly on the show before, but I thought I'd actually bring it up. I was there at the MCG uh, in February 1996 when Ian Harvey made uh, his maiden first-class century. It was a day-night shield game against South Australia uh, where Tim May was playing, if I recall correctly. Oh, the orange ball ones. But yeah, I, I, I can't remember whether it was orange or, or yellow, but it was one or the other. It definitely mm-hmm. wasn't the pink ball. Uh, and at the dinner break, we went on the field, the team, the, the, like the rep team I was playing for that summer, to do a fielding drill uh, on the MCG, and it was all terribly exciting. So much so uh, that I committed it to my to my school diary, which I pulled out of a box when I was in Australia a couple of years ago and took a photo of it. Um, Here's from the 15th of February, 1996, my entry. It starts by saying, played cricket, went to the MCG and did fielding drills, walked all over the MCG. Matty Elliott made 200. Ian Harvey made 134 from 130 balls. The Vicks won outright. To go to the cricket, I had to leave school early at 3 o'clock and go to my friend's house so we could be there by 4pm. It was a great night. <laughs> so I can tell you uh, when Ian Harvey's first first-class entry was, it was that evening. I remember he brought it up with a straight and, and, and we know we know that it was easy for you to get the permission from your parents to do that because if there's one thing that Daryl Collins likes, it's leaving early. <laughs> I think it's become a bit of a thing in our in our father-son relationship that I've spoken publicly so often now about Dad taking his home from football matches too early when I was a kid. I think he's got a bit of a complex about it now. This will add to it. So uh, thanks for that, Jeff. So Harvey actually made 136 of 132 balls in that game. I went back and checked the scorecard. But it might have been his first century, but he didn't make an even 100, so it can't be that. Harvey won six white ball trophies with Gloucestershire. Total legend of the club. He was described as... 
in his wisdom, uh, in a wisdom extract, had a messiah-like status in English domestic ranks, but gone largely unrecognised back home. I don't know whether it was quite unrecognised, but he definitely had a, 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 a had an aura about him uh, in England. He was one of the Wisdom Five in 2004. And when I rocked up uh, to play and visit friends in, in Sirencester in 2005, um, when Harvey was still there, he was a fucking legend of the club, right? And I become pals on the Victor Trumper cricket board uh, with the Hudson brothers. I think, Jeff, you've, you've met Rich when we stayed with him in Northampton back in 2015. And his brother, Dan who still uh, lives uh, out that way uh, in the West Country. He lives in Gloucester, I think. Uh, and, in, and in Dan's case, I remember him saying to me, because bear in mind, we talked on the Trumper board for like five years and I knew they were Gloucestershire Ultras and they mm-hmm. gave a lot back to their uh, local club at Sirencester. Dan's about my age, Rich is a couple of years younger than me. And when talking about Ian Harvey, um, Dan said he, he wanted to know whether I'd ever been to Want Hagi because he'd only ever seen Want Thaggy written down on the Crick Info page. So Want Hagi <laughs> is where they thought uh, they're, they're, they're hero had come from but no not to be right uh g'day dan or rich and or rich if, if you're listening rich want, want huggy and and wagga wagga yes that's right i should say by the way rich is a beautiful writer he wrote um wrote a book called pressure myths which i strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in in learning about that uh, pressure and cricket uh, he works these days at buckinghamshire uh, one of the minor counties i digress ian harvey played 73 times for australia including winning the 2003 world cup uh, i'll never forget that that slow ball against Pakistan, the first delivery uh, that he bowled uh, in the uh, World Cup of 03. He was totally fearless, would always um, send it down early in a spell, didn't mind that it was a sort of a, a high-risk manoeuvre because he backed himself and backed his talent. But we were told here in the clue uh, by Tunza uh, that we were looking for a T20 game and a batterman. Now, technically speaking, this isn't a batterman, but I understand where Tunza is going with it because I did not know, Jeff, that Ian Harvey hit the first ever century in T20 cricket. I knew he'd whacked one in 2003, but this was the first one, and even 100 not out, out of the 135 that Gloucestershire were chasing at Edgbaston against Warwickshire on the 23rd of June 2003. It was the first year of the blast, and thus it was the first... I don't think it was called the blast then, but it was the first year of the T20, and thus the first... Yeah, and the first recognised competition of that form of the game yeah. that we now, you know, when the stats start. And that's the freaks. So 100 not out of 50 balls, 13 fours, four sixes. Uh, they got to their tally six overs early. Not a batterman because obviously all the players weren't out, but certainly higher uh, than 67.35% of the runs made for Gloucestershire that day. And what a team. Gidman, Elaine, John Lewis, never knowingly underbold as Andrew Miller uh, once wrote. Uh, he was opening with Craig Spearman, who the New Zealand player who was another Gloucestershire legend uh, of the era. Uh, and I should say, by the way, as well, that Ian Harvey, it wasn't just there that he was lauded. He did play uh, in white ball premierships for Victoria and the 2003-04 Sheffield Shield final that we talked about last week on Storytime. But a fabulous player, lovely bloke, still, of course, working and living over here. He was coaching Gloucestershire this year, who had a brilliant season, uh, winning seven games in the championship. Uh, And they are in Division 1 next year. So uh, great to talk about the freak. One of my favourites growing up, uh, Ian Harvey, uh, 100 even for Sean Tunn. We're all behind the freaks these days. Gloucestershire are the freaks. Yeah. That's that's what they will be forever. More. Forget WG Grace. Gloucestershire is defined these days by Ian Harvey. That's where we are in the. Forget about Grace. Century. Forget about Hammond. It's all about yeah, Harvey. Forget about him. Yeah. Look, what I, I'm I'm willing to put on the record that I bet Ian Harvey cheated a hell of a lot less than WG Grace. Put it that way. <laughs> and got, and got venereal disease an awful lot less than Hammond. 
<laughs> maybe not even at all. Maybe not even at all. Let's assume. Maybe not even. Let's assume. Maybe not even. Let's assume not, even not at all. Let's start with not at all and build yeah. from there. Hammond, on the other hand, a, nearly fucking died of knobrot. A true freak knows how to glove up. A true freak knows how to keep safe in the boudoir, right? That's the, a true freak knows how to operate the entire thing from top to bottom uh, without error, without risk without danger. That's where we've come to, Tunza. Thank you for that. Uh, we've got a couple more to go. Yeah, second last revisit, 12.34 from Rosie Piper. I reckon this is our third go at this one. Uh, first time around we talked about a 12 for 18 uh, by a 19-year-old. Uh, the second time, uh, Jeff, was all you uh, discussing Mornay Morkel, which Rosie enjoyed. She adds that her stat lies with a batter who topped a stat in 2009, and she reckons that should get you there. It did. It did. Uh, a 2009 stat. Well, Tilan Samarawira made 1,234 runs in 2009. And aside from being a bloody good total for a test match year, the reason that really stands out is that's only the year that he got shot in the leg in Pakistan in the attack on the Sri Lankan team bus in 2009. That uh, horrific day when, you know, it's a, a miracle that none of the Sri Lankan players were killed. Um, others were killed uh, in in that attack trying to protect them uh, and, and something that, you know, keeps having ramifications right through until today in terms of cricket in Pakistan. Uh, Samar Awira's story is a fascinating one in that, like, he was always a player who was regarded as a bit limited and and, and wasn't quite backed um, by the establishment there up until this point. But uh, in this year, he's on an absolute hot streak. He's made two double tons in the series so far, then gets shot and then takes three months to recover from that bullet wound before coming back to the field and continuing to score runs. So... It's interesting sort of watching him bat. He's one of those compact kind of Sri Lankan players who was very defensive through the early part of his career and then opened up to have more shots as he went on, could play the sweep shot uh, really well, could go through the offside uh, with power as well through point. And he's not one of those players who gets remembered like the great Sri Lankans, but 14 test centuries, 81 test matches, averaging nearly 49. He really belongs among the elite for that team. Made a ton on debut in 2001, made another 100 later that year. Generally played better in Asia, but he did make two tons in South Africa, which is not for nothing. Mm. And his 2009 is crazy by any standard. So he makes 77 in Bangladesh, goes to Pakistan, makes 231 in Karachi, then 214 in Lahore. And it's after two days of that match that the attack happens and he gets shot in the thigh um, and has a bullet lodged in his leg. It's the 3rd of March. By the 4th of July, he's back in a test match playing against Pakistan in Gaul when they had a reciprocal tour to, um, to kick things off again after the attack. So he makes 31 and 34 in that match and that's quite substantial in the context of the game. His 34 ends up being the key contribution in setting 168 for Pakistan to chase and then Sri Lanka managed to bowl out Pakistan. Rankin Aherath in that match opened the batting as a night watchman. I thought you might enjoy that little piece of, of information, Adam. He, yes. he, he came out with a few overs to go at the end of the day um, and was an opening bat and made a few runs at the top of the order as well. Summer Awira went on to make another 73 in Colombo. And then when New Zealand visited 
only a few weeks later, he made 159 and 143 against them coming back from being shot. Goes to India in November that year and makes a, a 70 and a 78 not out and has this incredible year where the run scoring continues after the rehab as well as before, 1,234 runs in the year. And he will also go down in history as the maker of the fourth highest score in a test match by visiting bat at Bundaberg Rum Stadium in Cairns. They can't take that away from him. <laughs> and there it is, Rosie Piper. I'm glad we got there you know, third time, third swing. I'm sure it's right. It's 12.34. Right, Brian Strain, we said it was to do with Joe Burns hitting 24s last a couple of weekends ago. Uh, I wasn't on that on, episode. That no, did, no, no, that, this, was, this was on a weekend. So, yes, so the clue yes. was weekend at Burnsies and on oh, an right. innings that spanned a Saturday and a Sunday, Joe Burns hit 24s and the number was 2.00. Yeah, right. And, and so I went back and forth with Brian a little bit. He gave me a clue that it was to do with the Simpsons episode Weekend at Burnsies, which I do remember and know. And he also wanted me to know that it was to do with the South African city of Pal. And I, I, I wasn't getting close enough, so Brian solved it for me. It's a cracking yarn. So I'll, um, in fact, Jeff, why don't you read it out? I think this is more your kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Brian says the pledge relates to the New Zealand men's team tour of South Africa in 94 5. Uh, the match against Boland at Pal just before the second test. The team's combined total scores in the shortened match was 200, hence the pledge of 200. Weekend at Burnsies, uh, that relates to what happened after the match, where Dion Nash, Matthew Hart and Stephen Fleming were later suspended for having a couple of joints. This seems to be a theme of the show today. Yes. According to Dion Nash, uh, they were the first three players asked about whether they had smoked it and they all admitted to it, so the management <laughs> then stopped asking anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> the the story is apparently told by Dion Nash, uh, who, who we've enjoyed and celebrated on this show before. He also took all the wickets in that Chris Cairns match that I mentioned mm, earlier mm. when they beat England. Dion Nash took all the wickets in the, the second innings there, so another Dion Nash ref on the show. Um, he was on a cricket podcast called Top Order, giving an interview where he, he lifted the lid on uh, what had happened with their youthful indiscretion in South Africa. And, of course, the weekends at Burnsies is when uh, the Simpsons that which legalises oh. medicinal marijuana, which is quite controversial yes. when we were kids. I mean, I guess we would have been teenagers mm-hmm. at the time, I suppose. I seem to recall it being like around 98 and it being quite yep. a big deal uh, that they were addressing that topic. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't yeah, know Homer, Homer gets on the – he gets prescribed medicinal marijuana yes. and has a good time, yeah, basically. That, that's the guts of it. And our last revisit for today – it's been a big show. I, I promise it would be. At 2.31, Chris Dobbins. We said Bradman making two ducks, then 2.70. I'm not sure how that relates to 2.31. I can't remember. Chris says, you were so close. My 2.31 pledge is a bowling stat. But the funny thing about cricket is that a dollar figure can relate to more than a player's individual stats. Now, Chris's original clue, I should say here, by the way, Jeff, is that there's a running theme for his pledges. Uh, and when we looked up this stat, he was looking uh, for a particular type of stat that was not a cap number. And, and one thing led to another, Jeff, and he's basically solved this for us as well. Yeah. So, so this, so 
Chris's first one was two dollars and four cents, and that was for Greg Chappell's two hundred four. Yep. At the SCG, and so I was looking for SCG related things, and I mentioned that Ian Chappell's cap number is two hundred and thirty one, which would fit the number, except that we were told it wasn't a cap number. So I said, "Well, it can't be Ian Chappell." Ah, uh, yes. Turns out. It was Ian Chappell, but in a different way. So it's not the 231 that Wally Hammond uh, made when he kept it in his pants uh, at the SCG. As says Chris, it's not Ian Chappell's cap number, but as it so happens, Ian Chappell's best bowling figures in his career just so happened to be two for 31. Against the West Indies at Brisbane in 68 when he dismissed Jackie Hendricks and Lance Gibbs. Enjoy that beautiful little stat, says Chris, and we do, and we will. I've never really thought about Ciappelli bowling, but now I am, and I'm very happy to be thinking about it, Chris. Well, when he first got picked, uh, Ciappelli, it was, he, I think he batted number seven in his first test match in bold leggies. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's... He must be the last player to be picked <laughs> down the order as a leg spinner and then go on to be a prolific bat. Yeah, I just can't uh, think of anyone else. I remember actually writing about this when Smith was kind of slowly but surely making his way up the batting order in my early days as a columnist with the ABC and uh, saying that, look what they did with Ciappelli. He went from batting six to number three and vice-captain. They should do the same thing. He can make something of himself, this young bloke Smith. And uh, lo and behold, he, he did. Uh, and uh, and so it goes. I should say, by the way, that um, speaking of the Chapels and Steve Smith, uh, there's an extract in the Saturday Age of the new book that Greg Chappell is releasing next week that uh, he's written with Dan Bredig. And the extract is brilliant reading. It's about how did sandpaper happen from behind the scenes. And Chappell's laying it all out there really laying it all out there about the players, around the administration, around the coach, Darren Lehman. So I strongly recommend through the weekend picking up uh, that from the Age website and then ultimately uh, picking up a copy of the book. I know Dan's put loads of work into it with Greg Chappell over the last 12 months or so, and it's all about his time as a post player. So it's not a memoir of his playing career. He's done that uh, years ago with um, with Malcolm Knox from memory. Um, this is a, a different kind of book around him as an administrator, a selector, and all the rest. Indeed. A couple of confirmations, and then I think we're out. The 156 from Matthew Lusty. Well, this isn't so much a confirmation as uh, just a mercy killing, um, (laughs) like the the last couple of numbers, because I was talking about Ricky Ponting's 156 at Manchester. Uh, Matthew says, uh, thoroughly enjoyed listening to you say my surname dozens of times on the podcast. Lusty. You're almost right, but stopped a year too early. It was Andrew Simon's 156 at the MCG in 2006. I still can't believe that I've been to it and only had negative memories. Matthew didn't like cricket as a child. Now Matthew does like cricket. He uh, went to Trent Bridge, says he had a great time at the fourth day, which was incredible. Lucky he didn't have tickets for the fifth day when it rained, but did have tickets for Manchester, so got to feel the disappointment <laughs> integral to watching cricket in England, <laughs> which I can back up from. I mean, the English people who are on the Discord channel anytime England played, my God, they're a pessimistic bunch. Like, when England were chasing 56 or whatever it was the other night, there were still people convinced they would lose. Like, <laughs> take a deep breath in, take a deep breath out. Like, you can do this. You're, you're going to be okay. Yeah, despite the fact they're world champions in 50 over cricket, you know, they may very well be dual world champions in a couple of weeks. That inherent pessimism, uh, I suppose, is the defence mechanism. And, yes, I'm glad that mm. he raised that, that Simons 156 as well there, Matthew Lusty, because that was a bloody fun day at the cricket with 90,000 others 
uh, at the MCG uh, in what was, of course, the, the sort of farewell Melbourne test for Warren. But three days at the G where it was chockers and heaving and all the rest. Uh, and our last revisit is from Richard Jones, 266. Uh, Jeff, you said Redpath uh, hitting two sixes in one innings. Uh, and uh, Richard says, well done, Jeff. You nailed it again. I've updated my pledge and look forward to hearing that come up in a few months' time. I think it will be much easier. Well, thank you, Richard, uh, for that. Looking forward to seeing the next pledge come in. And Jeff, that is us done. I'm looking down at my recorder. We've been going for just under an hour 40. I'm not sure what it reads on on the podcast app at the moment, but it's been an awful lot of fun. It has. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I I kicked back. I wore my tracksuit pants. I told some tales. What a time. What a time it is. Uh, thank you to anyone who has listened through to the end of the show. And uh, as we said, if you want to jump on the old patron, that would be great because we get more numbers and we get to keep making the show. This has been the final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, thank you everybody for contributing, uh, for pledging to Brick Lane Brewing, uh, for being fine supporters of what we do here. We'll be back with, well, many, many daily shows uh, every single day they are playing in this T20 World Cup. Until then, have a nice weekend. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of Nerd Pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.